the theory of human-caused climate change, to the public, that sounds like, oh, we don't really know that. It's just a theory. So, you know, when I hear that, I always want to tell people, well, you know, gravity is just a theory, too. But if you step off a cliff, you're going down. It's Maria from Cooler Earth, and this is Now What? A special season of our podcast where I'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who are doing the work and being very intentional about how they find new and engaging ways to communicate the challenges we currently face and just as importantly, the opportunities, ways forward and reasons for hope. This week on the podcast is Susan Joy Hassel. Susan is the Director of Climate Communication, a nonprofit organization aimed at assisting scientists and journalists in communicating climate change effectively and efficiently. She has built a career around the question of how to best communicate climate change, starting as a writer and communicator for the Aspen Global Change Institute, followed by an increasingly diverse portfolio including one-on-one coaching, running communications workshops, writing a documentary for HBO, serving as the senior science writer for the National Climate Assessments, and a great deal of public outreach, including a wonderful TED Talk. Susan, hi, welcome to the podcast. I wanted to start by hearing a bit about you and your career. Sure. I've been working in climate change communication for about 30 years. Um, I've done a lot of writing um, and editing with scientists, uh, some of the big assessments like the first three national climate assessments in the U.S. and the Arctic Climate Impact Assessment, trying to help scientists communicate what we know in a way that is clear, concise, and compelling, and um, helping scientists to become better communicators themselves by doing a lot of workshops for scientists. Um, in, in how to communicate more effectively with the media, with policymakers, with the public, uh, teaching them how to avoid jargon, how to be better storytellers and use good metaphors and design graphics that people can understand. Um, I've also written an HBO documentary, Too Hot Not to Handle, um, about global warming and I've testified before the U.S. Senate at the invitation of Senator John McCain when he was chair of the Senate Commerce Committee about some of the work I'd done in the Arctic. Um, I'm, I'm part of the scientific community, really, on this issue, even though I'm not a scientist myself. Um, I'm a member of the American Geophysical Union and the American Meteorological Society and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I was an elected, elected a fellow of AAAS. And um, right now I'm doing a lot of work with journalists to help journalists incorporate climate change into their work, into their stories on every beat. That, you know, this is not just a science story or an environment story. This is about people. It's about our health and our food and our water and recreation and our economy and everything we care about. And so I'm trying to help journalists to connect the dots between uh, the extreme weather events that we're experiencing and climate change and just helping them tell stories that about how climate change is already affecting people and what is being done about it. So really focusing on the solution side as well as the problem side. So that's uh, something about what I do. And um, I, I think a lot about language and the words that we use to talk about climate change, both the problem and the solutions. And 
uh, psychological issues and the partisan divide, and I try and try and work on all of those things. Do you think you had a particular aha moment when you realized there was really a gap in knowledge and research into climate change communication specifically? Or what do you think sparked your interest in this field in particular? Yeah, so uh, many years ago, um, I was working at the Aspen Global Change Institute, and I was listening to scientists speak all day, every day. And it became very clear to me uh, that they were using a lot of uh, not only jargon, but terms that meant different things to the public than they do to scientists. And they, because they were all scientists, they were talking to each other. And, uh, you know, I was listening with different ears. You know, I was listening. And this is why I think that my not having the traditional scientific training uh, of a scientist is what part of what makes me good at what I do because I don't have the curse of knowledge. You know, when you once you know something, it's very hard to remember not knowing it. And to be able to explain it to somebody else who doesn't know what you know, um, that's, that's what I call the curse of knowledge among scientists. I don't have that. You know, I hear with a layperson's ears. And so I'm able to say when I hear a scientist say a term, that I know what they mean scientifically, but I also know that the public isn't going to hear it that way. So when a scientist is talking about a theory, to a scientist, a theory is something that's very well established in science and can be used to make a prediction. But to the public, a theory is just a hunch or a guess, or that's just some theory. So that's problematic because, you know, when they talk about the theory of human-caused climate change, to the public, that sounds like, oh, we don't really know that. It's just a theory. So, you know, when I hear that, I always want to tell people, well, you know, gravity, it's just a theory too. But if you step off a cliff, you're going down. So, you know, climate change is, is not just a theory, right? It's, it's a scientific theory. It's very well established in science, and it can be used to make predictions, just like the theory of gravity. And we know for sure that human activity is the cause of climate change. We know that with as much confidence and certainty as we know that cigarette smoking causes lung cancer. So um, that's just one example of the kind of language that I hear scientists use that the public uses in a different way. And so I become famous among my colleagues, maybe infamous is a better word, for telling them about all of these terms that they use that mean something totally different to the public, like aerosol. Scientists use it to mean tiny particles, but to the public it means a spray can and, you know, that kind of thing. For me, this is one of the most fascinating things about your work because you have now collected over 150 terms like this that mean entirely different things in a scientific context than they do in our everyday language. It's really mind-blowing to me. Um, and when I first saw your TED Talk, I remember thinking it was genius and very important to highlight. It's it's fascinating. It's funny. You know, in a way, scientists just say something and, you know, they, they just mean something different. And it's not only in climate change. It's in all areas of science. So in another area, the, the term organic, right? So scientists think, you know, organic is anything that's made of carbon. Right. But to the public, organic is, is, you know, vegetables grown without chemicals. Right. So, yeah. The, and there's lots and lots of these. And what do you think are some of the most misunderstood terms about climate change in particular? 
Well, I, I've already mentioned the one about theory, and I think that's an important one. I, I also think um, scientists will talk about positive feedback, and a positive feedback in the climate system is where warming causes something to happen that then causes more warming. So, for example, we've got a lot of snow and ice in the Arctic, and when that snow and ice melts, it reveals darker land and water surfaces underneath, which absorbs more of the sun's energy. And that causes more warming, which causes more melting, which causes more warming in a vicious cycle by which global warming feeds on itself. Scientists call that a positive feedback. Well, to the public, anything positive sounds like a good thing, right? A, like a positive trend is, you know, something is going well, but a positive trend in temperature means it's getting warmer. And a positive feedback, which while that sounds like a good thing, you know, to most people, is not positive. It's not a good thing. So I think that's another example of one. You have now been doing this for a while, 30 years to be exact. I'm curious to know how you have seen things change. Have you seen an evolution for the better in how people perceive the issue of climate change and in the way the people working in the field have become more mindful and intentional in understanding that how we communicate is actually very important? I think for the most part, yes. Um, I think many people are realizing that words matter and the commu how we communicate these things is important. Um, I've certainly been uh, you know, beating that drum for a long time. Um, I've written about it. I've spoken about it. I've tried to, you know, help scientists uh, understand that. And and I feel like they have improved quite a bit. And there are still some who just, you know, <laughs> they don't want to hear it and they don't think it's important. And they say, oh, that's just semantics. And the data speak for themselves. And I say, no, they don't speak for themselves. You have to speak for them. <laughs> and how you speak for them is very important, you know. And uh, so uh, there really is a big difference between how scientists generally communicate, right? They don't think in stories. They think about facts and they think about communicating the facts. Well, you need to deliver the facts through story because that's how people understand things. And so some scientists have always been great communicators and but I think that they have been improving, and, and that's a good thing. As far as the public's understanding, it's a really interesting question. I think the thing that I've realized more than anything is that most of the problem we face with the public is not a lack of scientific knowledge and understanding. It's this partisan problem and this identity politics and the fact that you know, one of the things I talk about in my TED Talk is a solution aversion, and that when when people who are resistant to the notion of climate change, it's not really because they don't understand the science or don't accept the science, is because they're averse to what they perceive the solutions would be. They're afraid that it, you know, if we accept that this is real and human caused, and we need to do something about it that that might infringe on their personal freedoms, that somebody might then be telling them what kind of car they can drive and what kind of light bulb they can use and, you know, what kind of food they should eat. And so because they're averse to those solutions, that makes them reject the science. And there's been some testing of that, including some of the data that I show in my TED Talk, and we find that it's really true. So I don't think the biggest problem is that people don't understand the science. On the other hand, I will say that I think that many people 
do not understand even the most basic mechanism of climate change, that the world is warming because we're burning carbon-based fuels, these fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas, that's releasing carbon dioxide, which is a heat-trapping gas, and that's trapping heat in the Earth's atmosphere and making it warmer. I think a lot of people don't know that. I think a lot of people still confuse and confound the issues of ozone depletion and climate change. They don't realize that these are two separate issues because they're both issues that deal with the atmosphere and something that people have done, I think that those get lumped together in people's minds, and that's problematic. Um, so I always feel like there are some things we can do with language, even simple things, to help people understand the basic mechanism. So instead of calling the gases that cause climate change greenhouse gases, I tend to call them heat-trapping gases, because that tells people every time we say it what the issue is they're tra these gases trap heat, right? They're heat trapping gases. Oh, that's they're trapping heat. They're making it warmer. So that's sort of reinforcing the basic mechanism. On the point about partisanship, it's something that we have talked about on the po podcast quite a bit, and really as a roadblock right now, as you say, because it's at times not about understanding of the issues that is an impediment but rather the fact that this is an issue that has become so incredibly politicized that even bringing climate change up is seen as a political conversation when it really doesn't have to be. What are your thoughts on how we can begin to change this? Yeah. <sighs> Big sigh. That's, it's, it's really the hardest question it's that, that we face right now is, is how to depoliticize this issue which has become politicized and wrongly i think you know this is obviously not a political issue it's this is an issue for everyone for all people it's not just an issue for democrats it's not just an issue for environmentalists we all are living with the consequences of climate change and we can all be involved in the solutions and i think part of the problem is that people listen to their leaders that's where they get their cues from. And so if their elites, their elite leaders are cueing them that this is something we don't accept, we don't want to do anything about, then that's where they come down because that's the people with whom they share their cultural values and their identity. And I do think we're seeing some shift, though, and um, we're seeing more independents and Republicans understand the seriousness of this issue. We're certainly seeing younger Republicans uh, taking climate change seriously. And there was just an article in today's New York Times about how we're starting to see more Republicans talking more about climate change and solutions to climate change. And you know, so I, I think that maybe we're starting to see a little movement in the right direction on this, but it certainly shouldn't be as partisan as it is. Part of the problem with this is the way the media tend to frame and report on climate change. They frame it and report on it as a political issue. And they, you know, in talking, say, about the Green New Deal, they talk about sort of political strategy and tactics, but they don't talk about the substance of the issue. And so it's constantly framed in political terms, and that triggers the partisanship, and it triggers um, cynicism 
instead of talking about the issue itself and the substance of it, which would allow people to get beyond the, you know, the horse race, the political way of thinking about it. So, you know, plenty of, <laughs> plenty of blame to go around in terms of, you know, the, the media and, you know, how, uh, you know, the, the political, uh, setting in which this is dealt with, but I would certainly like to see us get beyond beyond this point. One of the, and by this point I mean the partisan gap that we face, one of the ways that I've found helpful is sometimes talking about solutions that people agree on. So I am always looking for common ground and shared values. And, you know, we all want a a clean environment. We all want a healthy and vibrant economy. We all want to see job creation and, and growth. So I think when we talk about clean energy, for example, I think we can bypass some of that partisan, you know, identity thing that comes up when people hear the words global warming or climate change. And if we just talk instead about clean energy and the multiple benefits that we get to our economy, our environment, job creation, technological growth um, and development, all of those good things. Um, I think that's sometimes a way to get past some of the partisan divide. I mean, some of the states that are leading the country in, for example, wind energy, Texas, Iowa, these are, you know, Texas is a pretty red state, but they're they're leading the country in wind energy. And, you know, the Midwest part of our country is like in the Great Plains, the Saudi Arabia of wind is a tremendous resource there. And people like it and they don't have to be, you know, blue to like it. The people that are, you know, on the red side of the aisle like it too. And so that's, I think, one hint is that when the front door is locked, Meaning, if you say the words climate change or global warming, people are going to shut you down and they're not going to even listen to what you have to say. Then it's smarter, rather than beating your head against a locked front door, to find a side door. And I think that going straight to solutions that everybody likes, like clean energy, is one of those side doors. Definitely. I can't help, however, but also think that whenever we start talking about solutions, we can also get very much covered in jargon from electricity generation to storage and microgrids they're all very technical things that most people don't really understand so i'm curious how i'm curious to know how you approach the communication of solutions too as those also need to be told through stories and plain and simple language absolutely i think that's really really important i think most people just don't know a whole lot about our energy system and um, so, yeah, I think we do have to be careful. In every field, there's jargon. And, you know, I think, for example, a great example that sort of crosses between policy and science is a term that people use now, negative emissions. And, you know, of course, what they mean is drawing down carbon from the atmosphere, right? Well, why don't they just say that? <laughs> they just say drawing down. Why do they say negative emissions? So the term negative, as I said to you, positive to the public, positive is good, negative is bad. So negative emissions sounds like bad emissions. <laughs> but of course, that's not what they mean. They mean the opposite of, 
emissions, right? But so, so what are they say, saying that emitting carbon dioxide, methane, that's positive emissions? <laughs> Silly, you know? So that's just another example. So just say drawing down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, removing carbon dioxide removal, right? You don't have to use jargon terms like that. So it's just a matter of awareness. And simplifying things, right? Um, I think anything as complex as it is can be explained in plain and simple language that everyone can only understand, but take it with them and internalize to become multipliers of the message. I think right now we will need everyone really to be having these conversations and furthering others' understanding about the centrality of these issues in our lives. That's absolutely true. And, you know, Einstein said we should make everything as simple as possible, but no simpler. And I think that's really true. Sometimes you can oversimplify something, and I don't think we need to do that. Um, scientists will sometimes call that dumbing down, and I hate that term. I always say, no, it's not dumbing down. Your audience isn't dumb. They just don't know the same jargon that you know. So you want to smarten up your communication because you don't want to talk to people. I say the only thing that's dumb is talking to people in a language they don't understand. So you're smartening up your communication by making things, by simplifying them and using simple, clear language. I like that a lot. I also wanted to go back to the media for a second, because I know this is where a lot of your work now has been focusing, um, where you're shifting your work towards. The media plays a critical role in helping communicate scientific findings, but at times they fall into this idea that because they need to be fair and unbiased, that means also allowing a platform and voice to those who do not believe in human-caused climate change. How do you think the media and journalists specifically can do a better job at covering the issue and telling this very important story? Yeah, so I think there are a number of things. What you're referring to there is the problem of false balance, right? It, it doesn't make any sense. And, and this is, again, goes back to the framing. If you're framing it as a political issue, then if it's a political issue, you have to sh tell both sides. But this is a question of science. This is a question of scientific fact. It's not opinion. And you don't need to tell, quote, both sides. You need to, you know, uh, there's only one side of the science on this. The science is very clear. And so it's false balance to bring on somebody when 99% of scientists agree to bring on somebody to represent a point of view that is almost non-existent among actual climate experts. So that's a problem. It's gotten better over time. There's not as much of that false balance, but there still is some. So I think if, you know, journalists want to do a better job, there are at least four different areas that I think that we need to look at. One is the quantity of coverage. This is the most important story of our time, and they need to keep telling it. I mean, there are stories around climate change that could be told every day. There was a great one in the New York Times today about agriculture across the U.S. and how it's being affected. Um, you know, with higher temperatures, change in growing seasons, more pests, um, issues with flood and drought that <clears throat> are being dealt with, and a lack of <clears throat> chilling hours for certain crops. So there are stories that can be told every day, and it's not just telling new climate stories, it's also 
incorporating climate change and the climate change context into stories that they're already doing, stories of all kinds, right? So there's the quantity, and then there's the the quality, you know, that the coverage can be deeper and better and not um, subject to this, you know, tactical, political thing, right? So the the topics and the framing should not be... Um, all political. There should be about all of these other topics. And and then there's another area where I feel like journalists are often failing to connect the dots between things like the extreme weather events that we're seeing. So we'll be having a hurricane and it's stronger and it's wetter and it's intensifying more quickly and the, there's more rainfall in it and the storm surge is higher. And yet they're reporting on the hurricane, but they're not reporting on how climate change is causing all of those things that I've just mentioned, that list of, of changes, they don't mention those. They don't connect the dots. Or they'll be covering the wildfires and they won't make the connection to climate change and how climate change is making these fires worse. So climate change is contributing to these disasters and people continue to call them natural disasters. And I say, no, they're unnatural disasters. And I even wrote a paper by, the na by that name, Unnatural Disasters, Communicating the Linkages Between Extreme Weather and Climate Change. And that's available at my website, climatecommunication.org, along with lots of other things, including my TED Talk and other articles and other resources, um, really good websites that people can go to that I've sort of curated and collected at, at my website. Um, so I think, you know, all of those are things that the, the media could do better, right? Reporting more, reporting with different framing, uh, connecting the dots, and not falling victim to this false balance idea. Those are all ways that journalists could improve the way they're covering climate change. Right. It's definitely true that people have so many concerns in their everyday lives. If you're thinking about making ends meet, raising a family, focusing on your studies or your job, it can be really hard to ask of people to also be thinking about things like climate change. But I often tell people that if I do my job correctly, I would be linking all of these things uh, for people to understand that all of the things they already care about are actually linked to climate change and ultimately a changing climate and its impacts really do affect every aspect of our lives. So there's an opportunity there to harness people's interest towards this important issue. I think it also comes up uh, in political elections specifically, right, when candidates tend to focus so much more of their time in other issues. We certainly saw this in 2016, uh, where climate change was mentioned only for a few minutes in presidential debates overall. Do you think this is changing, though, and where we're at a point where climate change is becoming a vote-swinging issue? Yes, um, and there's good data to back that up. Um, people are more worried than they have been about climate change in the past. The, the analysis, the surveys by Yale and George Mason have shown that. There was just a brand new poll out today that showed that climate change was the number one issue among Democratic primary voters, the number one, even higher than healthcare. So we are really seeing um, a change in, in this regard. And I think it has to do with a confluence of a number of things. I think that the extreme weather that we've been seeing over the last few years has really 
you know, coming home to people that this, we are seeing the impacts of climate change. You know, most people will experience climate change through the changes in extreme weather, more so than the gradual increase in average temperature. And so how we talk about that and how we make those linkages and connections is very important. And I think people are getting that. So I think that's one reason. I also think that there have been uh, a spate of excellent scientific reports from the, from the IPCC's special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius, where they really showed the difference between a 1.5 degree world and a 2C world and a world that's warmer than that, and how much we stand to lose with each little bit of increment of warming. And then the U.S. National Climate Assessment, which the Trump administration tried to bury by releasing it on Black, on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, but it backfired and people were very interested in seeing this report that they were trying to bury. And, you know, that also brings, brings climate change home for people and shows that this is not just a problem for the future. This has moved firmly into the present and it's affecting us in every region where we live and where we work and everything we care about. So I think that these kinds of scientific reports and the coverage that they've gotten and the also the sort of political changes that have taken place, both for better and for worse, you know, the fact that people are hearing about a lot of the really terrible things that are going on in the current administration to move us in the wrong direction, and also hearing about the Green New Deal and, you know, in the, these various campaigns, uh, just yesterday, Beto O'Rourke, you know, um, launched his plan for dealing with climate change. And so we're seeing people talk about it. I also think the young people's movement, the school strikes for climate, Greta Thunberg and the others that in this country that are doing this. And, you know, the fact that over a million young people were in the streets all around the world saying, this is our future. This is not okay. Um, you know, and so I think that there's just been this tremendous confluence of things that are really bringing this to the fore, and um, I'm glad to see that. And it's not a moment too soon because we really have to move very quickly and very deliberately if we want to avoid the worst. And that's really the good news: is that the future is still in our hands. Whether we get a little warming that we can, a little more warming that we can adapt to and deal with, albeit with some pain, and if we just let warming continue on its current course and have a catastrophe on our hands, we really get to choose. So we have to choose quickly, though, because we we need some uh, very rapid and very ambitious action. I think you just spoke about this a little bit, but I always like to end the podcast by asking guests to share some of what makes them hopeful about the future, specifically the future of climate action. Mm. Well, yeah, so the actions of young people really stepping up on this um, make me hopeful. Also, uh, the changes we're seeing in the energy arena where... Um, where solar and wind are now cost competitive with even just the operating costs of coal plants. You know, so 75% of the coal plants in the U.S. actually cost more just to operate than if we were to replace them with new wind and solar and storage. So, you know, we have now reached that crossover point 
where a clean future is actually less expensive than a dirty future. So why would we not make that choice? So that makes me hopeful, seeing the the technology change and the cost coming down and people realizing that. Um, seeing big businesses moving in the direction of clean energy makes me hopeful. And um, I think that there's, you know, hope is is an active verb. It's not just a matter of feeling, you know, optimistic that things are going to work out well. Things will work out well if we take very aggressive action and do the right thing and do it quickly. And so, you know, I am hopeful, but it's with that caveat that we have to do something to make that play out the right way. Susan, it's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you for all that you do. Um, certainly for how much the resources you provide have helped my work and the work of so many others. Oh, good. Well, I hope people will find the resources at the website useful, and they can also from there go and see my TED Talk, which uh, maybe will give them a little more inspiration. And So I enjoyed talking with you today. Thanks. So let me know if you need anything else from me. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this conversation valuable, please share it with friends and colleagues and don't forget to give us a rating wherever you're listening. See you next week.